take that Bible this morning. We're going to go back to John chapter 3, and I'm going to finish that section on part 3 of the new birth. All of these are on line, of course, for you to listen. Let me read the text, and we're going to be focused in verses 5 through 10 this day, but let me read the entirety. In John 3, 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. May God bless his word. Andrew Davis, in his excellent book called An Infinite Journey, written on the doctrine of salvation, said that the word great is thrown around so casually great in our culture that it loses its meaning. In nature, there are the Great Lakes. There is the Great Barrier Reef. There is the Great White Shark. In history, there is Alexander the Great. There is the Great War, World War I. I mean, in literature, there is the Great Gatsby. There's another piece called The Great Expectations. Certainly every sports enthusiast likes reading the list of the hundred greatest baseball players of all time. And on it goes. Muhammad Ali called himself the, what? The greatest. In many cases, the word great, you would agree, is an overstatement. However, when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, the word great is definitely an understatement, isn't it? There's a passage in the scripture that talks about not neglecting so great a salvation. Now, last week we looked up on the screen here. We brought that list up that described, uh, it's a finer point of theology, the order of salvation. Of course, we're unpacking in John 3, 1 through 10, the doctrine of the new birth, the doctrine of being born again. We might even call it in theology the doctrine of being regenerated or regeneration. There on the the list, at least if we show it to you, regeneration comes number three. But I tried to put that together last week just to touch on it again this week. There's calling an election and God's sovereign electing call, his choice to be saved. That call comes in eternity past. But amazingly, the gospel call, the gospel call is the preached word of the gospel that goes out. Even this week, I heard of a couple people trusting the Savior. And of course, trusting the Savior is a, is a response to that call. As that word comes and is preached, God regenerated, regenerates the heart. He causes the heart to be born again. As the heart is born again, He grants conversion. 
And then I call those the Siamese twins of faith and repentance. In that act of being born again, one is justified where God in the throne of heaven, if you will, declares one righteous before himself. It is a legal standing before God. He adopts you into his family. He calls you part of the family of God and he sanctifies you. And remember in the summer, in the doctrine of sanctification, he makes you holy positionally, but then you work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what I just wanted to say to you is that numbers 2 through 7a, if there's two parts to 7, they all happen at conversion, do they not? They all happen or in the process of what it means to become a Christian, okay? All of those things happen simultaneously. It is a great, great salvation. Of course, the doctrine of sanctification and number eight, perseverance, are lived out in this life. Number nine is our death going to be with the Lord and glorification is receiving that resurrected body at the second coming of Christ. Now, You say, you you made a big deal, Scott, last week that regeneration comes before conversion. And I did, because God's got to breathe new life into you before you can respond in faith and repentance. But don't split a hair over that. That's probably a nanosecond of time. But I just showed you that so that you might see the full picture of what God's doing. I mentioned last week I had no idea what the Lord was doing in my life at the age of 14. All I know is that I was a wretched sinner. All I knew is that my sin was enough to send me straight to hell. All I knew is there was a Savior, and I dropped to my knees, confessed my sin, got up and knew that I was a Christian, knew that I was born again at that point. Could I articulate those other doctrines? No. But this is the greatness, beloved, of our salvation in his calling to us. But we're focused here in John 3, on number 3, the doctrine of regeneration. And remember, we've said the last couple weeks, it is the secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. I call it the secret act of God because it happens internally. And we went on to say last week, when one becomes born again, we said that is not a process. It happens once. It is an instantaneous process of a sovereign God in our life. You don't have to get born again multiple times. You don't have to confess Christ multiple times. I like how William Shedd, the theologian, said it. He said, the new life is not implanted because man perceives the truth, but he perceives the truth because the new life is implanted. He said, a man is not regenerated because he has first believed in Christ, but he believes in Christ because he has been regenerated. He is not regenerated because he first repents, but he repents because he has been regenerated. And then we begin to look in the last couple weeks at the cause of regeneration. It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. We looked at the instrument. It's the Word of God. We looked at the time of our regeneration. Here's where it finds itself. You know, it's amazing when you look at one, that's a calling before the foundation of the world. But there's no doubt that number, you know, three and seven happen in our lifetime as the God convicts us and we come to saving faith in him. 
And then last week, you remember, we finished with the results of regeneration. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what we've been doing the last couple of weeks is navigating our text in the Lord's Day Bulletin of the Notes there around four key principles that describe, if you will, the new birth. And even in describing to be born again or the new birth, it defines the nature of saving faith. And we've looked at those first three principles, and we'll finish with the last one today. We looked at first the inquiry of Nicodemus, where it says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night, and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He made an inquiry. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler. He was a member of That phrase there, ruler, makes him a member of the Sanhedrin. And we said that almost abruptly, Jesus, um, it it appears, would just kind of stop him in the tracks and and give this disclosure, secondly, of the Lord. In verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And uh, we noted there that to see the kingdom of God is equivalent to enter the kingdom of God. And when he disclosed that of the new birth, it utterly confused Nicodemus. And so the third principle was the confusion. And you can see it in four. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He is utterly confused. And and if this man, according to John 3.10, is the teacher, he does not understand what our Lord is talking about. The Lord Jesus Christ is addressing spiritual birth. He's addressing the doctrine of being born again. And Nicodemus, evidently in verse 4, is fixed on the physical birth. He, He asked there, you can see it, how can a man be born when he is old? Now, there's either two thoughts here. Either either he's talking just literally. I mean, what do you think? In other words, Nicodemus is just saying that's impossible. He's utterly confused. He's he's saying literally in verse 4, how can I be born when, when I am old? How can I go into, my, into the womb, if you will, in verse 4 and be born again? And he's talking physically, literally. Of course, there's some people who would say, come on. He, of course, didn't believe that. And he knew what the Lord was addressing. And he's saying to the Lord, this religious man, how do I start all over again? I mean, this is all I know, Jesus. Do you want me to go back all the way to the beginning? I am too old. It is impossible to change my ways. I am a religious man. I am a Pharisee. My dad was this and my grandfather was this. I studied at this point and frankly, it could be both aspects of that. Either maybe he was just talking a crass literalism and say, I can't go back into my mother's womb. Or maybe he knew what the Lord was talking about. And he's like some people who grow up in a cult. They grow up in a false religion. They just can't give up the tradition. They just can't go back. 
They can't leave how they were raised, even though it's false and it likely, in many cases, depending on who it is, would send them straight to hell. So some don't want to change because this is all they know. This is all their family knows. This is how they were raised. And it's possible that Nicodemus, in his utter confusion, didn't want to go all the way back and repent. And so number four, and we'll pick up the text here, the Lord's going to clarify for us. It's the clarification of our Lord. Look at verse 5. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You'll note that he said in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And now in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Our Lord's going to clarify for Nicodemus' confusion. And maybe just as you take notes there, there's a biblical clarification that will come first. And then, for the sake of a word, we'll call it the meteorological clarification in verse 8 of the wind and the sound, and you see its effects, okay? But first, the biblical clarification. Look what Jesus said in verse 5, and some of you have wondered about this. We understand the statement that you must and the necessity of regeneration, but he says, unless one is born of water and the spirits... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does that phrase mean to be born of the water and the spirit? There are various views that are given in, uh, different, uh, by different scholars to explain Jesus' words about being born of the water and the spirit. Let me just tell you about three of them, okay? There's more, um, but these seem to be the main ones, okay? There's first the two birth view. I mean, again, we're getting at what does it mean when he says to be born of water and the spirit? Two births in in what some people think. The water here referring to natural birth and the spirit referring to the birth from above, okay? Or to be born again, which literally means to be born from above. And so in this first view, there's two births depicted here. One is from the flesh, one is from the spirit. One is natural, the other one is supernatural. In other words, Jesus is saying here, if that's the view, that the natural birth is not enough. There must be a a second birth, there must be a spiritual birth. And obviously, you know, you can take that thought out. The natural birth would be seen when the amniotic fluid breaks from the womb shortly before childbirth. So you were born of the water, but you also need to be born from above of the Spirit. And there seems to be little support for this, and I'll explain this in a moment. I believe when he talks about water and the Spirit, he's giving you one great reality of what it means to be born again. So I'm going to take the water and the Spirit together. But secondly, other people say this. Hey, what Jesus is talking about in John 3, 6, he's talking about Christian baptism. That the water refers to baptism as an essential part of regeneration. We would call that baptismal regeneration. Now, I know there's some people, some I would call them occult, that would believe that. They make the passage say 
that the physical act of baptism is necessary, Christian baptism, for salvation. So you need to be born of the water, baptism, and you also need to be born of the Spirit, but you well know, Grace Church of the Valley, that that view contradicts Bible verses that make it so clear that salvation is by faith, what? Alone, okay? And, and in addition to that, it's talking about water. It's not talking about baptism. So people who hold that view seem to seem, seem to read baptism into the word water when it's the word water, okay? But thirdly, there's other people who would think within the context here, this refers to John the Baptist's baptism. It's kind of hard to say. We'll just call it John's baptism, okay? That the water refers not to Christian baptism, but to John's baptism because of the immediate context in 1 chapter 1. But if this is the meeting, Jesus is saying that the baptism of repentance, as important as it is, is not sufficient. There must be spiritual uh, birth as well. Now, you can begin to tease those out, and there's a few other ones. But listen, there's something more here than those views and that those views clearly miss. Let me just say here at the beginning I don't believe he's referring to literal water, okay? I'll explain myself in a moment. When he says to be born of the water and the spirit, I don't believe the idea here is literal water, okay? He is not referring here to baptism, whether John's or Christian baptism. So then what is he doing, pastor? He is using an Old Testament analogy, as I will show you. In fact, as I mentioned early, the water and the spirit must be taken together. They relate to one birth in verse 3. Both are expressions of being born again. The key here to understanding John 3, 6 is this. The Old Testament references to water and the spirit, let me make this statement, refer symbolically in the Old Testament to spiritual renewal and spiritual cleansing of the Holy Spirit. And and I'm going to take you there in just a moment. I, I think he's clearly talking about an Old Testament analogy. And the reason I think that is glance down in John chapter 3. Here, incredulously, Jesus answered him in 3.10, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, Nicodemus, you're a Pharisee. You're a member of the Sanhedrin, and you don't know what I'm talking about. He couldn't believe it because as a Jewish leader, he should have known what he's talking about. And again, I think he's talking about this Old Testament analogy, okay? Now, let me say this. When water is used figuratively in the Old Testament, it habitually refers to renewal. It constantly refers to cleansing, especially when water is used next to the Spirit. And there's a number of passages. I don't want to take you into all of them. Numbers chapter 19, Isaiah chapter 32, Isaiah for sure, 44 verse 3. It talks about the water and it talks about the Spirit used in renewal and used in cleansing in conjunction with the Spirit of God. 
Furthermore, when you look at that second concept of spirit, it is constantly God's principle of life, even in the creation itself, in Genesis 2, Job 34. But listen, many Old Testament writers, many of them, look forward to a time, do you remember that passage in Joel 2, when God's spirit would be poured out on humankind? And when that spirit is poured out in Joel chapter 2, there's blessing, there's righteousness, that's Isaiah 32. There's an inner renewal which God cleanses his covenant people from their idolatry and their disobedience, Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel chapter 36. But let me say this, most important of all, and I believe this is what Jesus was directly referring to, was Ezekiel chapter 36. Turning your Bible over there, you see the water and the Spirit come together. And I think this is striking. And I put it up on the screen for you, and you can turn there in your Bible. But here, Ezekiel is prophesying. And he's prophesying a future day of what God will do prophetically in the nation of Israel But he's also talking about the new covenant that would come too before the end of time. And you'll note there that God says to the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. He says, I will cleanse you. Obviously, the clean water is metaphorical there. It's an analogy to have one's sins washed away. And then look there, it says, I will give you a new, what? Heart and a new, what? Spirit. That is the doctrine of regeneration. In other words, Almighty God was telling in the book of Ezekiel that when the new covenant comes, that when Christ comes, these are using as analogies that water is going to symbolically cleanse you of your sin and sovereignly, I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you, that I will put within you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here, Ezekiel was telling you about the new birth that would come in the New Testament at the new covenant, and I also believe there will be a pouring out of this at the end of the age. But you can see it. It's all stated right there. The water symbolized the cleansing from impurity and the spirit referred to the impartation of life by the entrance of the Holy Spirit into the life. So Ezekiel, beloved, is prophesying that God will give an internal, an internal cleansing from the pollution of sin and a heart at the same time he awakens new spiritual life into his people. Can you, can you see what he's taught? He's like, Nicodemus, you don't understand this? I told you that it would be like this. Listen, you must be born again. You must 
have a new heart. You must have a new spirit. He's saying to Nicodemus, but forget Nicodemus. He's saying to you that it's not enough to be religious. It's not enough to go to church. It's not enough to live on your grandfather or your grandmother or your great-grandfather or your great-grandmother's faith or your father's faith or your mother's faith. It's not enough even to go to a membership class. It's not enough if you were just baptized. It's not enough if you just attend Grace Church of the Valley. Beloved, listen, you have to be born again. You have to be born anew. You have to be born both by water and by the Spirit. Those are analogies that describe the the taking away of sin, the cleansing of sin, and the impartation of new life that God gives. In fact, these two ideas are so closely connected in Ezekiel. uh, And the fact that Jesus assumes Nicodemus should have understood this truth is enough to think that this is precisely what our Lord is referring to. You know, we don't have time for this, but it is no accident that the account of the Valley of Dry Bones in the next chapter of Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel preaches and the Spirit brings to life dry bones, follows hard after Ezekiel's water and spirit passage in Ezekiel 37. So listen, when Jesus talks about being born of water and the Spirit, he is referring to the spiritual cleansing from sin that Ezekiel prophesied about and the new birth. Here's what Nicodemus and and our Lord is saying to him. You need a spiritual cleansing. You need a new heart to enter the kingdom of God. You need to be born again to see the kingdom of God, to be born of the water and the spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Now look down at John 3, 6, because here's one of the finer points that which is born of, or 3.5, when he talks about water and the Spirit. I'm reading in the ESV, capital S, Spirit, of course, in the Greek language, there's not capitals there. And you could either take that to be a new Spirit that God will give you, or you need to be born here in 3.5 of the Holy Spirit in, in the context. And I actually believe that he's referring to the Holy Spirit there that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit take the word of God and, if you will, impart new life into the sinner. God takes his word, shows us our sin, then converts the sinner and imparts new life to the sinner. And apart from the new birth, no one can enter the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus is so emphatic on this. Look at the next statement in John 3, 7. He says this to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In fact, go back to six. He says that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. I think you get the analogy. He's just clarifying there. Flesh, humanness, gives birth to flesh. And flesh just refers to our human nature. I don't think he's so much talking there as he is in Romans 7 when Paul speaks of that inward principle. Here, he's just speaking of our humanness. An earthly birth produces an earthly family. And the principle here is that flesh is powerless to make one enter the kingdom of God or to see the kingdom of God. 
He's just telling Nicodemus, listen, you've got to be born from above. You've got to be born of the water and the spirit. And here's why that which is flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, certainly we grasp that because we understand the depravity of man. In other words, think about these scriptures in light of your condition. David said in Psalm 51.5 that I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother, what? Conceive me. We know that by nature we're born into sin. That which is of the flesh is flesh. You've got to have something else. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately what? Sick. You've got to have a new birth. So listen, I should just stop right now and just ask, have you been born again? Because if it's up to you, and if it's up to your religion, and if it's up to Nicodemus and keeping the law and observing the law and teaching the law, Jesus said, you need something else. You need a new birth. Jesus said in Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All those things, Jesus said, come from within, don't they? He said all these things come from within and they defile the person. So when you think, where do those things come? Well, they're external, theft, immorality, murder, adultery. He said, but those things are from within. Paul said in Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot what? Please God. If you're in the flesh, you can't please God. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So listen, this is part of who we are. And I'd want to say to Grace Church is don't make the mistake to think that these verses describe other people than you. Don't think that these verses describe people such as criminals and drunkards and hypocrites and thieves and gangsters. These words that we just spoke about describe every man since the fall apart from a miraculous intervention of God to save him. Listen, they describe you. They describe me. The Bible would say this, that all have turned away. They have all together become worthless, Romans 3.10. There is no one who does good, not even, what? One. And so you need a new birth. It is only the new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit that produces the change and allows us to enter the kingdom of God. And I would just say this was so counterintuitive to Nicodemus. He spent his entire life relying on his own merits, relying on his own religion, relying on his good deeds in order to gain salvation. And so Jesus says, no, you need to be born of the Spirit. In fact, look what Jesus said to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 7. He said to him, don't marvel. That I said to you, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, this is not optional. Nicodemus, I think, must have looked shell-shocked 
Again, he's Jewish. You understand, forget the fact that he's a Pharisee. Just the fact that he thought he was Jewish was enough to save him. But then add on top of that, he's not just Jewish, he's a Pharisee. And then add on top of that, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. 71 guys in the whole nation. And then to have Jesus said, listen, unless you're born again, you can't enter, you can't see the kingdom of God, absolutely shocked him. So he gives, number one, a biblical clarification there. But then secondly, he gives him a meteorological clarification. Okay, look at verse eight. This is an outstanding scripture. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And then here's the principle. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirits. In other words, no one can control the wind, okay? We may have gauges that maybe accurately more define it now with the hurricane that I read of this last week, that if, if I'm right, what I read, that it was up to 200 miles per hour. Where did that come from? How does that come? And what's amazing about the wind, you would agree, and this is the principle, it's invisible, fair? You can't see the wind, okay? The wind in that sense is mysterious. However, its effects can be witnessed, fair? All you have to do is see the news of a 200-mile hurricane. You can't see the wind, but you could watch the destruction, okay? Similarly, the Holy Spirit, listen, beloved, works sovereignly. He too cannot be controlled, but the effects are obvious. The effects in 3.8 are undeniable. The effects are unmistakable. In other words, the whole, when you become a believer, something happens to you. It is the secret act of God. It might not be visibly seen like when you were redeemed, but something took place in you. It takes over you. He changed out your heart of stone and he made it a soft heart. He gave you the will. He gave you the desire. He gave you the affections to love him and desire to obey him. That happens to you. You are born again. It changes you. In other words, the wind... Though you can't see it, you watch its effects. The Holy Spirit is a secret work in the heart, but you see its effects. And we talked about that last week, the results of the new birth and how we live in a day in which we live where there are so many people in this community claiming to be in Christ, but not born again. So many people. And so I should ask you as a shepherd, have you been born again? Have you come to Christ? Have you fallen on your knees, beat on your breast, say, God, be merciful to me? In fact, I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones last night, and he was talking about the sovereignty of God and the new birth. And if you're sitting here, he said, you need to wait and pray and watch because he's in sovereign control of that. Sinclair Ferguson, kind of a simple little story, talks about the changes that happen in the heart that then become visible. I thought it was kind of funny. Sinclair Ferguson tells of a young man who came to church after um, a while, 
and after a while, he was converted. So he was at the church, and then after he'd been there some time, he became converted. And here's what he told an elder. I can't believe how much the church has changed within the last few weeks. The hymns are so lively now. The worship is so wonderfully meaningful. Why, even the preacher is better. Say, what happened? His heart changed. Listen, why do you think you can, some of you have come out of some, and I'm not trying to say anybody, but you've come out of dead churches. And you know why the churches are dead? People are dead. The worship, there's no expression to it. There's a glaze over people because they're going through the motions and they need the new birth. But listen, beloved, when you get the new birth, when when he's redeemed you and he saved you, it changes your life from the inside out. Spurgeon asked this, and I say this to encourage you. He said, do you feel now? Here's what he was saying about the result of it. He said, do you feel now that you love God? That you seek to please him? That now spiritual realities are realities to you? Now the blood of Jesus is your only trust? Now you desire to be made holy, even as God is holy? And then he said this, If there is such new life as that in you, however feeble it may be, though it is only like the life of a newborn child, You are born again, and you may rejoice in that blessed fact. That's good, isn't it? Listen, if you've been redeemed, he changed you from the inside out. So he's just using a meteorological clarification. He gives a biblical one. You're born of the water and the spirit. Ezekiel told you about that. Don't be surprised, Nicodemus. And here's a meteorological clarification that just as the wind blows and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes and you can't see it, so too the Spirit of God is working in such a way. Now, this week, I got to tell you, when I was a young man, there, probably like uh, early 20s, this quote by Sharnock, Stephen Sharnock, who wrote two thick volumes on the attributes of God, has stayed in my mind and heart from the first day that I read it. And I was thinking this week, I wish I had that quote by Sharnock. And so I bought Sharnock's book, On the New Birth. And it's about this thick. And it's called The New Birth. And I'm telling you, it's about 390, 400 pages. And there was a a quote that he said that stuck in my mind. And I thought, how can I find it amidst this massive tomb? So what did I do? Google. Because I knew, I knew the word lamb was in there. And I knew the word wolf was in there. And I've never forgotten that. Because he began, did Sharnock, and I found it. I want to read it to you to describe what happens in the new birth. And it's a long quote, and he's a Puritan, but hang with me and email if you want the the version of this. But listen to what he said, and i just thinking of the changes that take place and the results that take place. He said, Sharnock said this, the frame of the heart before the new creation, it's the new birth, and the frame of the heart after bear as great as distance from one another as heaven from earth. 
Now, now I, I probably shouldn't stop. I believe that. That is why when people who claim Christ, who walk an aisle, who pray a prayer, but feel no responsibility to obey his word and to be with the people of God, I can't make sense out of that. He said that frame of heart is as great a distance as heaven from earth. As God and sin are most contrary to one another, so affection to God and an affection to sin are the most contrary affections. He said it is quite another bent of heart as if a man turns from north to south. He abhors what before he loved and he loves what before he abhorred. You say, well, that's for a significant Christian. No, that's 101 right there. He, Sharnock says he was alienated from the life of God, but now alienated from the life of his lust. Nothing would before serve him, but God's departure from him. Nothing will now please him, but God's raise upon him. He was before tired with God's service. Now he's tired of his own sin. Before crucifying the motions of the spirit, now crucifying the affections and lust. That which was before his life and happiness is now his death and misery. He, and listen to this word, he disaffects his foolish pastimes and sinful pleasures as much as a man does the follies of his childhood and is as cheerful in loathing them as before he was jolly in committing them. It is a translation, Sharnock said, from one kingdom to another, a translation from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. He said, God pulls out the heart of stone, that inflexibleness to him and his service, and plants a heart of flesh and a room, a pliableness to him and his will, Ezekiel 36. And then the last statement, here it was. It is as great a change as when a wolf is made a lamb and that wolfish nature is lost and the lamb-like nature introduced. Wow. Is that you? Maybe, I don't, I don't want to be uh, harsh here. Because maybe somebody comes to your mind and they prayed a prayer and they signed a dotted line and they memorized all the verses in Awana, but there's absolutely zero affection for God. Listen, let me just encourage you. It could be that that person needs to be born again. Fair? Born from above. I'm not saying that a believer can't go in a cycle where they move away from the Lord, but not long. Listen, once you've been touched by the new birth, it's like the wind. You can't see it, but you see its effects. And the new birth is a secret act of God, but the effects are obvious in one's life. And so here we have our origin, an unseen God who works supernaturally in the heart. It is not a human decision. It is a secret act of God in the heart of a sinner. Look what Nicodemus said to that in verse 9. He said to him, how can these things be? He's confused still, okay? He was holding, I'm thinking, on his man-made system and he could not accept what he was hearing. And Jesus said, look at the final verse, answered him, verse 10, are you the 
Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? I mean, I think he was saying to him, and I kind of take that with the definite article, he's the best in Israel. And I think Jesus is saying, you are the professor. You are the trained doctor in law. And you don't understand these things? Jesus found it inexcusable that this prominent Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, was unfamiliar with the Old Testament teaching on the New Covenant presenting the path to salvation. Let me say this, at least here, that Nicodemus sadly serves as an example of the numbing effects of legalistic religion that obscures people from the finished work of Christ. And listen, for you parents out there, you've got to pray for your children, don't you? You just got to pray for them. You got to pray that they have the new birth. And you want to get them around the scripture? You want to have them be around the scripture? You want them at reality? You want them at resolved? You want to send them to explorers tonight? But all at the same time, you're saying, God, breathe life into them. And what makes a healthy church is a church that's filled with people who understand and have experienced the new birth. So listen, Nicodemus is a sad example of so many millions today. Millions today. Who I think have a form of religion, but not knowing the power. Now, let me just add this, and we're going to go to the Lord's table. In 3, 1 through 10... It focuses on the divine initiative of a sovereign God in regeneration. What's fascinating, you come back next week, John 3, 11 through 21 will focus on the human reaction to God's work in regeneration. And seven different times in John 3, verses 11 through 21, he tells people to believe. You got to believe. You say, but Scott, if I look back up at your chart, you can't believe until he breathes new life. I know that. But you're also commanded in this text, in this chapter, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Patty and I were talking with someone in the summer. Tremendous conversation. A tremendous, love the young man. Smart young man. Intelligent young man. Grew up all of his life in the local church, but not sure he should follow in the ways of Christ. And he said to us, I I just don't know if I'm elect. And we didn't say, hey, you're not elect and you're not regenerated. We said, you need to move forward and trust and believe on the gospel. Because I pointed him, and we can point, look down at John chapter 3, I'll point you. John 3, 15, whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. Whoever believes in him. You know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not what? Condemned. Verse 36, whoever believes in the son has what? Eternal life. Listen, if God is calling you this morning through his word, then you must respond in repentance and faith. And as we go to communion, as we go to the table, only God is great, is he not? I was at a football game Friday. I saw some great runs. We use that term, don't we? 
We see people who make great shots. We see people who have a great performance uh, in singing. We have other people who said, what a great wedding. What a great car. Listen, those could be overstatements, right? To the greatness of God redeeming you. And if there's anything that I would say to you today is this. As you come to the Lord's table, as we sing Amazing Grace, can you believe that God did that for you? That he opened your heart? That he showed you your sin? That when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he breathed life into you? We should just be so humbled, should we not? That in all of his greatness, he came down and redeemed us and changed our heart. Do you know there's such a change of heart that Sharnock said, as we saw here, that we will persevere because his seed abides in him.